Leviticus chapter 20. And I want to begin this morning by reading verses 7 and 8. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Our Heavenly Father, I pray as we look into your word that you would teach us what we need to know and that you would change us how we need to be changed to be more like Christ. And I pray that the truth of the gospel would be even more real to us today and the impact that it should have in the way that we live our daily lives. May we be holy and may we be growing in our sanctification all throughout life's journey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning this morning and in the weeks ahead, we're going to be looking at a topic from Scripture called sanctification. Sanctification. Because the Christian life is really a journey of sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God in us where we are set apart from sin to His service and growing in the likeness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the moment of salvation, we are separated from sin through Christ and the work that He did. And so that our position before God, as He sees us in Christ, is the position of complete holiness, the holiness of Christ. One day, when we die, or should the Lord come first, and we are caught up in the rapture, When we see Christ, we will at that point be totally and perfectly transformed into the image of Christ and perfectly glorified, perfectly sanctified. But between those two points, that is the moment of salvation and our future glorification, is where we're living right now. And between those two points, you and I have been instructed by God to be transforming, to be changing every single day to become more like Jesus. That process of changing, that process of being set apart from sin to God in our daily life is what we call our practical sanctification. That is our sanctification in practice. As we consecrate ourselves to God, as we change into Christ-likeness, by confessing our sins and choosing to do what is right. Really, the Christian life should be marked by you and I constantly becoming more like Jesus in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in everything that we do as we put off sin and we put on Christ-like behavior. Our thinking changes, our behavior changes. We give more of ourself and our time and our energy to serving God. And when we allow that process to work in our lives totally unhindered, then we receive the maximum benefit from our salvation. When we allow sin in our life instead of sanctification, we find the opposite is true. 
We find that the Christian life is a frustration. We find that life is, is more difficult than it ought to be. And the way to enjoy our gift of eternal life to the fullest now is to live a life of sanctification. And that is ultimately the kind of life that glorifies God the most. And as we grow in sanctification, we find that life is still filled with uncertainties, it's still filled with hardships, it's still filled with trials, but we see that even those things are a part of God's plan to continue to sanctify us, to continue to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to experience the joy and satisfaction that God designed the Christian life to bring, then we must live a life of sanctification. Now, this is a topic that is much bigger than I can cover in one Sunday morning message, at least in a Sunday morning message that you'd be willing to sit through all of. So we're going to kind of break this down into some smaller bite-sized chunks over a few weeks, beginning today with the concept of sanctification. And the verse I've chosen to begin with is from Leviticus chapter 20 because I think it really summarizes the idea of sanctification pretty well. And today we're going to be looking at the definition of sanctification, the position of sanctification, the culmination of sanctification, and then finally number four, the application of sanctification. But look again at these verses from the book of Leviticus. You know, if you've ever been reading through the Bible, maybe you're following a Bible reading schedule, and usually if you're following one of those starting January 1st, uh, it's sometime maybe February, early March that you get into the book of Leviticus. And you get into the book of Leviticus, and very quickly you begin to wonder, why am I reading this? If I wanted to know how to dissect an animal, I'd go to a biology class or I'd become a butcher. You know, why, what is all of this about separating the fat from the call? And why can't we wear certain clothes mixed together? And why can't you, uh, uh, you know, boil an animal in its mother's milk? And all of these weird regulations that you find, especially in the book of Leviticus. Well, there was a purpose that God had for all of those weird regulations by our standard. In the Old Testament time, God had a reason for that. It's because he wanted his people to be an illustration to all the world of what it meant to be holy and what it meant to be set apart from everyone and everything else, dedicated, consecrated to God and God alone. And so part of the way that that was demonstrated through the nation of Israel was through some of their practices like what they could and could not eat. They couldn't eat certain animals. Clean, un clean animals they could eat, unclean animals they couldn't. They couldn't wear certain types of clothes and so on and so forth. There's a key verse in there where God says that, that you may put a difference between the holy and the unholy before the profane and, uh, and, and uh, the, the righteous. I'm summarizing. But God's point was that it was to be, make a difference, that there was to be a difference between the holy and the unholy. So right in the middle of this, we find Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, which God says to the people, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now there's a command that God gave to the people that they were to sanctify themselves. Because God was their God, they were to be different. But then in verse number 8, he says, ye shall keep my statutes and do them. That's their responsibility. And then the Lord says, I am the Lord which sanctify you. So notice that there's also involved 
here the action of God in sanctifying his people. So when it comes to sanctification, there are, there are both aspects of our sanctifying ourselves and God sanctifying us. And I want to start with that understanding this morning because some confusion, a lot of the confusion revolves around whose job is it to sanctify us? Am I sanctified by my works or does God sanctify me regardless of my works? And the answer is neither. God sanctifies us, it's His work in us, but we cooperate with God as we obey God's Word. So notice with me, first of all, let's, let's talk about the definition of sanctification. For this, let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter number 2. There's a guideline in biblical interpretation that often is very helpful. That if you want to understand the meaning of a word and its biblical usage, go to the first time that it's used in the Bible, and it will give you a very good indication of what the biblical concept of that word is. I think it's important for us to remember that because there's, there is such a thing as the dictionary definition and the Bible meaning. And that sometimes they're not exactly the same, but they're always closely related because God used regular human speech to communicate uh, truth to us. But there are times where a word is used in a particular way in Scripture, and it's unique to Scripture. And so we go to Genesis chapter number 2, and we find the very first time that the word sanctified is used in the Bible. Look at verse number 3. It says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His works which God created and made. There we have the first use of the word or any form of the word sanctified in our Bibles. Now for context here in Genesis chapter 1, you have the record of creation where God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. And yes, we believe it was six literal 24-hour days. And we don't have to do any theological or exegetical gymnastics to come up with that because in chapter 1, God said the evening and the morning were the first day. You take one evening, follow it through to the next morning, and then the cycle repeats. How long does that take? 24 hours. So six literal 24-hour days, God created the, the world, everything that exists in the universe. But when we come to the seventh day, verse number 3 of chapter 2 tells us that God sanctified it. He blessed it and He sanctified it. And on that day, God did not create anything. Instead, it says He rested from all His work which God created and made. So the seventh day was different from the other six. It was different because, number one, God set it apart. He did not do any work in it like He had done the previous days. But notice also it says that He blessed it. The Sabbath day became the Lord's day. So it was set apart from the other days, but just as importantly, it was set apart to the Lord. And this is the idea of sanctification that you find all throughout Scripture, that to be set apart from something for a special function, particularly for the Lord, is what it means to be sanctified. So if you want a simple definition to write down, sanctification is being set apart from the rest for a special function. That's the basic idea of being sanctified. The word is used hundreds of times in our Bible, but 48 of those times 
are found in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, as we've read in Leviticus, some of those uses there, because that is the section in which God was giving His law to His people. And over and over and over again, God referred to them sanctifying certain things. Sometimes it was referring to people, such as the firstborn son, the male, firstborn male child was to be sanctified to the Lord. Uh, sometimes it was talking about property and possessions, like people could sanctify a piece of land uh, to uh, dedicate it to the service of the Lord. Uh, when the tabernacle was made, it was sanctified through a ceremony and a process. And all throughout this, you find that the idea is that you take something and you make it different from all the rest because it is dedicated wholly to God. That is completely dedicated completely to God. But then there came an even deeper meaning because notice again in our text here that we're looking at, Leviticus chapter 20 Verse number 7, the Lord said, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy. What is implied in the definition of sanctification? If you're going to be set apart to God, what are you set apart from? You're set apart from sin. That's the idea of sanctification. That you are set apart from sin and are living a holy life, a life dedicated to the Lord. Now, as you look through the Bible, you find that sanctification is something that we've been commanded to do for ourselves, as we've read here in Leviticus chapter 20. But here's another instance in Numbers 11, verse number 18. Say thou unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat the flesh, for ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? So there's sanctification is something that we do to ourselves, but then there's also an idea in which sanctification is something that is done to us. As the Lord said in Leviticus 20, verse number uh, 8, that I am the Lord which sanctifieth you. And then there's the inward aspect of sanctification, and that is when someone or something is set apart for a special purpose in our own minds, in our own hearts. Turn over to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, look at verse number 12, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and He was sanctified in them. Now, in this, these verses here, the Lord is telling Moses what His punishment would be for disobeying God's command to speak to the rock to provide water for the children of Israel. Remember on this occasion, the second occasion, where God gave water out of a rock, God had told Moses not to strike the rock, but to speak to it. Moses, however, apparently in frustration, disobeyed and he struck the rock. And it's interesting, as, as, as he did that, he makes a statement, must we fetch water for you out of this rock? 
taking it on himself as if he was the one who was going to be providing it. He disobeyed God. He struck the rock. Now, God in his mercy provided water, but not without consequences. As we read here, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because of what you've done, you are not going to lead these people into the promised land. But notice how God phrased it. He said, to, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. God wanted the Israelites, and you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Exodus chapter 20, and other passages in the Old Testament law. He wanted one thing to be very clear to the Israelites, and that is, He alone is God. All the other gods, little g, all the other false gods are not gods at all. There's only one God, and He is to be worshipped, and He is to be obeyed as He says He is to be worshipped and obeyed. He is different from every other conception of God because He is the true God. But you see, when Moses responded like he did, it gave the people reason to wonder what God is really like. Here is their leader angry. Here is their leader losing their temper and, and acting out this way. And because of his disobedience, their view of God was distorted. God judged the people on different occasions. And on this particular occasion, it says in verse 13, that because of God's judgment on them, that he was sanctified in them. And what these verses are talking about is the people's inward view of God. Whether they viewed God as different than all the others because He's the one true God, or whether they just lumped Him in with all of the false gods and had this distorted view of Him. And so this is the inward idea of sanctification, that, that you think of God in particular as different, and you think of Him according to how He has revealed Himself. And then there's also this outward concept of sanctification, and that is where it's not just what you think on the inside, but it's how you act on the outside, such as when someone or something is, is set apart for a special purpose. Like again, the tabernacle in Exodus 20, uh, 29, the Lord said, I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Now, I'm kind of hitting all these highlights about the concept of sanctification because I want you to understand with me this morning, it's really an all-encompassing idea. A sanctification is not just one little tiny part of the Christian life, but really, sanctification is what the Christian life is all about. It's inward. It's outward. It's upward. It has to do with our thinking, it has to do with our speech, it has to do with our actions. It is done to us, it is done by us. It's really what the Christian life is. It's a journey of sanctification. So that's the definition. As best as I can in my short time this morning explain to you what sanctification is. It is being set apart for a special purpose. And for us, that means being set apart from sin to God. Now, let's talk about the destinations on our journey of sanctification. If you're keeping an outline, this would be point number two. We're going to start with our position of sanctification, our position of sanctification. 
Let's go now to the New Testament, to the book of Jude. That little book that's tucked away right before the book of Revelation. And understand this morning that I'm, I'm really trying to condense things and help, help us understand the big ideas here. There's so much detail we could go into that we just don't have time. And there are many verses we could go to all throughout Scripture that talk about the position of sanctification. But let me just use this one as, a, as representative of the others. Jude... And there's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1. But look at verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are, what's that next word? Sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now Jude is writing to believers. We know that from verse number 3 especially. But he calls them three things in this verse. He says they are sanctified, they are preserved, and they are called. So he says you are sanctified. And the word in the New Testament means essentially the same thing as the word in the Old Testament. They are set apart from one thing to another for a special purpose. And in the context of being a Christian, Christians are sanctified. We are set apart from sin to God, period, the end. So when we talk about sanctification, we have to start with this understanding that as a Christian, you have already been declared sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your position in Him. Christians are called throughout the New Testament especially saints. And that is Another similar word that simply means a holy one. Somebody who is set apart from sin to God. And this was something that God did to us at the moment that we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Sanctification is not something that we did to ourselves. It is something that God did to us when we trusted Christ as our Savior. And this idea, this sanctification is really like a legal declaration where we are declared by God to be totally set apart from sin because of who we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six. Look at verse number nine. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, but, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is who we are in Christ. That is our identity before God. 
When we trust Christ as our Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. Ephesians 1.7 says it is through His blood that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and so that we become something different from the rest of the world. We are a peculiar people, Titus chapter 2 calls us. We're different. We're set apart. We're sanctified. We've been set apart from sin. We've been declared to be a saint. We've been called holy. That is who we are in Christ. But we don't always live like it, do we? We don't always act like we've been totally freed from sin. But the good news is there's going to come a day when we will. So we have our position in Christ, our position of sanctification. But I want you to notice with me next the culmination of sanctification. As we think about what Jesus did for us in the moment of salvation, we often think about how that Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and rising again for our sins, it paid the penalty for our sin so that we do not have to spend eternity in hell, but we get to spend eternity in heaven. And praise God, that is what the gospel does for us. But it's not all that the gospel does for us. The gospel is more than just a rescuing from the penalty of sin. The point of the gospel is to ultimately free us from every influence, every mark, every stain, every scar of sin. The gospel was not a band-aid. It wasn't just an emergency procedure to heal a wound. The gospel was intended by God to reverse the damaging effects that sin had on us. Now, when God created man in the garden, God created man different from the rest of creation. Because in Genesis 1.27, the Lord said, let's make man in our image. And so in the image of God, man was made. And when God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul and he was something different from all the rest of creation. The point here is that God created man in his original state sanctified, different from all of the rest of creation, set apart for a special purpose to have a special relationship with God and to honor God and to glorify God in a special way. But something happened that marred that image. Something happened that damaged the relationship that man had with God. It was called sin. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We pick up in verse number 9, and this is after Adam and Eve have chosen to disobey God. God comes to the garden to walk with them, and they have hidden themselves. Genesis 3, verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? The Lord did not ask that for his information. He asked that to point out to Adam and Eve and to us that a separation had taken place. He said, Where art thou? Verse 10, And he said, this is Adam speaking. I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
And the Lord said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? You know, prior to sin, man had unbroken fellowship with God. He had nothing to be ashamed of. There was no fear. He walked with God. He talked with God and enjoyed God as God intended him to. However, when sin came, it messed it all up. The image of God on man was marred so that now as man looked at himself in his natural state, he was ashamed. When he heard the voice of God, he was afraid. And so he hid himself. And when God speaks to Adam, he asks him, Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest eat not? In other words, did you sin? Is that what happened here, Adam? And of course the Lord knew. But what he's doing is he is trying to elicit a confession from Adam. Because only through confession that sin is forgiven. And we'll come to that, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. But I want you to notice what happened here. That whereas man was once sanctified, set apart from sin to God for a special purpose, now he is set apart from God because of his sin. And everything changed. Death came into the world. Creation was cursed. Now the gospel is the message that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and rose again. And we can be freed from the penalty of sin and we can receive eternal life. But there's more also. Jesus also died on the cross, was buried and rose again so that we could be restored to right fellowship with God by being once again set apart from everything else and dedicated to God and God alone. In Ephesians chapter 5, when talking about the, uh, the relationship between a husband and wife being like that between Christ and the church, it describes the work that Christ did in giving Himself for the church. Verse 27 says that He might present it, the church, to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And the church is made up of individual believers. So understand that part of Jesus' purpose in saving us was to, was to sanctify us perfectly so that He and we could enjoy that unbroken fellowship once again. Now in order for that to happen, in order for the damage of sin to be reversed, God has to do it. We cannot Nothing that we could do, none of our effort would ever be sufficient to reverse that damage. But thankfully, God has and is doing that work for us. He is able to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, Jude verse 24 says. So that is God's purpose in the gospel. Not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but to completely sanctify us once again. And that's a process that ultimately one day will be perfectly complete when we are in heaven. The future of the Christian then is to be transformed into the perfect image of Christ so that we are completely sanctified just as Adam and Eve were originally. 1 John 3 and verse number 2 Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a day when we will be transformed into perfect Christ-likeness, and God will then get the ultimate glory through us. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. 
speaking of our, the culmination of sanctification, what is ultimately going to, to happen to every believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We all know verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. Well, what's that purpose? Look at verse 29. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, a lot of times we take verse 28 and we forget all those other verses around it. We say, well, all things work together for good. And they do. That's what God says. But what is the specific good that God's talking about? The specific good is changing us into the image of Christ. And that is our ultimate end as Christians. One day we're going to be perfectly, exactly like Christ. Our position before God as He looks at us, He sees us in Christ. He sees us and declares us to be sanctified in Him. Our future the culmination of our sanctification is to be totally transformed into the image of Christ, restoring the perfect standing that we had when, we were, when man was created and thus glorifying God. That was then. The other is still in the future. But now let's think about what happens in between. Because right now, after salvation, before our future glorification, this is where we live day by day. What is, how do we take these truths and put them into practice in our everyday life? What does that look like? Well, notice with me finally the application of sanctification. We have the past, we have the future, this is the present. How do we take the truth of sanctification and put it into practice in our life? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And really this right here is the introduction for the next few weeks. Because what we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead is more about the practical side of sanctification. Some people object to the use of the term practical when it comes to talking about doctrine because they think it implies that some doctrine is impractical. That's not what we mean when we say practical side of things. We're mean, we mean putting this truth into practice. That's what we're saying. So this is the truth we practice, the practical truth about sanctification. Now 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, the iniquities and the evil works listed previously, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet or suitable for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Let me read another couple verses to you. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You see, there is with the idea of sanctification... The simultaneous truths that we have been declared sanctified in Christ, 
One day we will be perfectly glorified and transformed into the image of Christ. But in between those periods of time, we are to be continually sanctified and we are to be growing in sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ all throughout our lives. That is God's will for us. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 again says. We are to be constantly changing to become more like Jesus, constantly putting off sinful habits, sinful thoughts, sinful deeds, and putting on Christ-like behavior. We're to be constantly responding to the truth of God's Word in Scripture and allowing Him to mold us, to conform us into the image of, of Christ. And as we saw at the beginning, this is a cooperative effort. We have a responsibility to obey as God does the work in us to change us. God does the work, but we yield to that work in our lives. He's declared us to be sanctified in Christ, but we must sanctify ourselves by living holy lives. We must separate ourselves from sin to God. So between salvation and glorification, we cooperate in the process of sanctification by consecrating ourselves to God, by changing into Christ-likeness, by getting rid of sin and confessing it over and over and over again. Now some people might think, well, that just sounds exhausting. Wouldn't it be a lot better if we could just get to a point where we say, all right, finally, I've made it. I'm sanctified. I'm done. You know, there are some, some people actually teach that you can, you can achieve that, that you can, you can get to that point in your, in your life here on earth. And, and, you know, through a combination of things, you can become sinlessly perfect. But folks, that's not the case. As long as we live in a sin-cursed world, as long as we exist in a sin-cursed body, we are going to have to be putting off sin and putting on Christ's likeness. We're going to have to be changing to be more like Jesus. And what we find is instead of being exhausting, as we apply biblical principles, we find that it's exhilarating. We find that the, that the essence of the Christian life is really found in that process of changing to be more like Jesus. It's when we plateau or when we backslide that we find the Christian life is exhausting and frustrating and unsatisfactory. As we cooperate with God, we find that His blessings are bestowed on us to their fullest. As we realize that we have been declared a saint, now we should live like it. We find that God blesses us and doesn't have to chasten us. We understand that we'll never achieve sinless perfection, but we also understand that we can sin less and less as we yield to the Lord's working in our life. And so as we reflect this morning on what we've learned about sanctification, let me ask you, are you set apart from sin? In your attitudes, in your actions, in your words, in your deeds, are you separating from sin? Are you consecrated to God? Are you serving Him intentionally with your life? Or are you just kind of cruising through life on autopilot, just doing your thing, not really thinking about God and what He wants you to do? Are you growing in your Christ-likeness? Are you guarding yourself against the sinful influences that are 
all around you. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to get a better grasp on this very powerful truth. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God that's been shared and impress it on the hearts of those who have heard today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.